Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now, save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. John G makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love John G is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johng.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johng.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey, Felix. Yeah. Have you seen all the ads lately for electric vehicles? Uh, I did see that Will Ferrell one from a Super Bowl a few years ago. Did you know that Norway sells way more electric cars per capita than the U.S.? Norway. <laughs> well, I won't stand for it. I actually like that commercial. I remember it from the Super Bowl. Yeah, these commercials are basically everywhere now, right? Right, like a bunch of new models are on the market. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Nissan Aria. And there are tons of ads for them on TV, on YouTube. The F-150 Lightning is up to the task. But I can tell you from personal experience that a surge of EV commercials is not the same thing as a surge of actual EVs. How you doing? Hi, good. How are you? Okay. Hi, Frank. Um, I was interested in checking out some EVs, if you have any. Some TVs? EVs. Oh, EVs. Electric vehicles. Yeah, yeah. Just go right in and she'll, she'll check you in at the front desk. So last year, I went to some dealerships to look at buying an EV. I have just a few questions, and, and if it's possible, I don't know if we could even test drive an EV. I don't have any. You don't have That's any? That's the problem. And it kind of seemed like nobody knew anything about electric vehicles. <laughs> I think Will Ferrell would be really disappointed. It says combined city mm-hmm. and highway. City is 90, highway is 77. What does this even mean for an EV? <laughs> do, you, do you know what, what it really means? Not off the top of my head because, again, these are as newer to us as they are to you yeah. guys at that same time. So, we're... so for years now, climate experts have said to prevent the worst effects of climate change, 
We need to get off fossil fuels and transition to electric cars. And we need to do it fast. According to most models, the world needs to stop selling gas cars by the year 2035 if we're going to hit our climate goals. 2035, Felix, that's less than 12 years away. I mean, you're saying no more sales of internal combustion cars in 12 years. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Are we going to make it? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Just how fast can this EV transition go? This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Nate Hedgie. And today, the first of a two-part special, the race to net zero. Will EVs get us there fast enough? We've done big things before. We're now at an opportunity and a, a kind of crossroads. What are the barriers to this EV transition? Can I make it to the next charger without dying in the middle of the road? From the charging infrastructure to mining the metals that make batteries go. The mining industry is globally notorious um, for things like outright murder and violence towards communities that resist it. In today's episode, we look at four barriers we need to overcome if we're going to electrify America's cars. The race to net zero is already underway. So I want to start this big conversation about the EV transition with a little history lesson on seatbelts. Safety first, even for podcasts. So the first law mandating that car companies had to include seatbelts in their cars was passed in 1971. But the first law that said you had to actually wear those seatbelts wasn't passed until 16 years later in 1984. Seriously? What? WTF? <laughs> I mean, the average lifespan of a car in the U.S. is around 12 to 15 years. So any change takes at least that long to take over. I guess there's always resistance to change. In this case, there was a lot of resistance. People were reportedly cutting the seatbelts out of their cars in protest. They were challenging seatbelt laws in court. Op-eds across the country were saying freedom is more important than regulating safety. That sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> Yeah, so it took a lot of activism to get these seatbelt mandates passed. Eventually, every state but one ended up passing seatbelt mandates. Can you guess which state held out? I'm going to guess a state whose motto perhaps is live free or die, New Hampshire. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> you got it. Okay, if we learn anything from this decades-long saga of seatbelts. It's that change, it takes a really long time. Yeah, and a lot of it depends on policy. Back to EVs, the EPA just recently proposed a really strict set of emission standards that would basically push automakers to hit 67% EV car sales by 2032. But you never know with these things, right? Like there could be appeals, lawsuits, delays. Yeah, so if we look at where we're at today in the shift to EVs, only about 6% of all new cars sold in the U.S. today are EVs. So two questions. What is the holdup and like how do we speed things up? So the first barrier I want to talk about is consumer education. Because buying a new car 
it's a big deal. And like with any big purchasing decision, it's normal to have lots of questions. Where, where do you charge this thing? Is this yep. so where you plug it in? Yep. So you're going to have charging port right here. So when I was at this Ford dealership last year, the general sales manager showed me their Mustang Mach-E, and I asked him how long it takes to charge. So with those superchargers, you can yeah. get it done in, I think, you can get, I know the first 80% of it you can get done in, like, less than, I'm pretty sure, like an hour, but I think for a full 100% charge. He, did, he does not sound very confident. No, and actually he told me a lot of things that were wrong. Really? Like, he said you can charge the Mach-E at any Tesla supercharger. That's not true. What, do these have names? Like, what is this charger called? And I don't have that information. I apologize. Yeah. yeah. Um, I kind of feel bad for this guy. <laughs> so based on secret shopper studies where they send these undercover shoppers to ask all about EVs, this is kind of a common experience. People are not getting great info about EVs at a lot of dealerships. And... It's a big deal because recent consumer surveys say that about 35% of Americans are seriously considering an EV the next time they buy a car. 35% is actually a lot of people when you think about it. Yeah, but only if those people who are interested can actually learn about them and decide to buy one. So good afternoon. Welcome to EV Live. My name is Craig. I'll be your EV specialist for the call this afternoon. We are working with a one-way camera here, so you can see into our studio. I cannot see you, but I can hear you. Uh, we can have that. So one company trying to overcome the consumer education barrier is GM. They have this resource called EV Live, and Nate, you and I tried this out. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like this virtual showroom where you can talk to someone on a video call. Yeah, and right off the bat, the first question you had was about charging. Very basically, I have no idea how charging works. Can you help me understand how charging works? Sure. Are you interested in charging at home or charging on the go? Uh, both. I've, I liked that Craig wasn't sitting at a desk. He was you know, walking around, pointing his camera at stuff. Uh, so we have some charging devices I'm showing you here. Most of our vehicles come standard with a dual-level quartzet. You're seeing up here on the pedestal. This is actually we talked about charging, about acceleration, and about how maintenance is less expensive, but sometimes harder to find. Uh, just because your average you know, repair shop right now, they aren't as well-versed in EV technology. Especially if you're but the gap EV Live is filling, it's not just for us consumers. GM dealerships are calling up EV Live to train their staff. Plus, if someone comes into their showroom and stumps them with their questions, they can just call EV Live right there to answer the questions. So hopefully the experience I had shopping for EVs won't be as common anymore. All righty. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it. Thanks for setting this up. Yeah. So, Nate, do you feel like that was helpful from just a sheer education perspective? Yeah, I feel like I know more about EVs, but at the same time, like, I don't, I don't know if I actually want an EV anymore. There seems like a lot of challenges, like... Where I live, where I'm driving through a lot of rural Montana, if I was to go out and have my car break down 200 miles away from home, I'm kind of kind of screwed. What about you? I mean, you live in Boston. Yeah, I mean, like, the thing is, it's all street parking here. And so what am I going to do? Like, fish a, a, an extension cord, like, through the window into my basement and plug it into an outlet? Like... Right. What if, what if, what if someone, someone yanks out the extension cord or, yeah. 
Or like, what, what if they like actually plug my my cord into their electric car? Oh yeah, I didn't even think Steal about that. Steal electricity from me? Stealing your electricity, stealing your charge. So the second barrier to the EV transition we're talking about today is the lack of good charging infrastructure. And to give us a better idea of that, let me introduce you to Nora Naughton. Check, check, test. Nora's a reporter who covers the automotive industry. And back in 2019, when she worked for the Wall Street Journal, they did this experiment where a bunch of their reporters were given EVs for a couple months. Nora was given a Chevy Bolt, and she loved it. The zippiness, the instant torque, like... EVs are super fun to drive. You can do a hot lap in anything from a Bolt to F-150 Lightning, and you'll have the time of your life. Plus, she didn't have to go to the gas station anymore. It's awesome to not think about fueling your car every day. Uh, Again, this was pre-pandemic before we all stopped commuting, but getting that time back during the week was huge. So the city experience, two thumbs up. But what about outside the city? Yeah, to test that out, she took her Chevy Bolt on what would normally be a six-hour drive to northern Michigan with her wife. Mm -hmm. And halfway, they stopped to visit Nora's brother at his college. And I figured, you know, we're on a college campus. There's definitely going to be a charger somewhere. And there was. I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to plug this in while we eat, and I should get back a ton of range. They had dinner with her brother at a local pub. We were eating dinner for over an hour. And then Nora and her wife got back in their car, and they looked at the range. I think I got back, like, 20 miles of range. It was insignificant. Uh, so that uh, that was when the anxiety really started, when it was like, oh, my God, okay. And a quick explainer for our listeners who aren't familiar with the levels of charging. Mm-hmm. There's level one charging, which basically takes forever. And that's just like when you plug into a regular wall socket, right? Right. Then there's level two, which is what Nora was using on her brother's college campus. It's good for charging overnight, but it's not good for recharging on a long road trip because it takes several hours for a full charge. What you want instead is level three or DC fast charging, which can get you a full charge in 20 or 30 minutes, give or take. And Nora basically blew by all of the available fast chargers when she drove out of the greater Detroit area, which she didn't realize at the time. Anyways, back to Nora's trip. I wasn't even thinking about my destination anymore. I was thinking about, like, can I make it to the next charger without dying in the middle of the road? They're driving through more than 100 miles of woods. It's the middle of the night, and it's the middle of winter. Nora's wife spent most of the trip in the back seat, covered in blankets. Trying to stay warm because we had to conserve battery by turning off the heat. Um, That was the only way that we could make it from charger to charger. She was not super pleased. Nora says the trip back was even worse. They just went from slow charger to slow charger. We got through an entire season of Awkward on Netflix. Uh Uh-huh. That was great. (laughs) On my phone that I couldn't charge off the car because I would take up too much battery. Oh, my God. This sounds like the worst commercial for electric cars ever. (laughs) This is the one they're not going to show in the Super Bowl. The pro gas lobby is going to pay for this commercial. So who's, who's to blame for this? Nora blames herself first for not finding a fast charger for that first half of the trip. Well, to be fair, though, like 
it's kind of a new thing to have to think about. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you worry about running out of gas, but you can pretty much count on finding a station when you need it, and they all sell the same kinds of gas. Right. So the second thing she blames is the charging infrastructure. Mm -hmm. When you compare the number of charging stations to the number of gas stations in the U.S., it really can't compare. Like, for every 25 gas stations, there's only one public fast charging station. Wow, that is not a lot. And I imagine they're probably not evenly distributed, right? Yeah, there's serious gaps in low-income urban neighborhoods and rural areas. Uh, unfortunately, not a, not a huge surprise for me. Um, so that's a big barrier. H- how is the U.S. going to cross it? Well, there's private and there's public investments to build up the charging infrastructure. In the private sector, companies like Mercedes-Benz, GM, Rivian, they're all building their own charging networks. Plus, Tesla has just started opening up parts of their network to non-Tesla EVs in the U.S. And then on the public side, there's two federal bills, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that passed in 2021 and the Inflation Reduction Act in 2022. Between the two, $7.5 billion are going to states to install chargers along interstate highways and in rural and low-income areas. Plus, more money is going to individuals and private companies in the form of tax credits. This incentive for EV charging is really, I think, going to unlock huge private investment, creating the gas station model for EVs. This is Sarah Baldwin, electrification director at the Think Tank Energy Innovation. Sarah says this is all a big deal because it'll give people the confidence to drive EVs and to not get stuck. And it creates a virtuous cycle. The more chargers there are, the more people buying EVs. The more people buying EVs, the more profitable chargers are, and so the more chargers get built, and so on and so forth. So on and so on and so on. That's like that's the that's where we all tip towards EVs. That's that's the tipping point. We're like breaking down barriers the way the Kool-Aid man breaks through walls. <laughs> yeah. Although I think we're building up infrastructure more than we're tearing things down. And that's true for the next barrier we're talking about, too, the grid. That's going to be right after the break. But first, we put out a survey last year asking you for your thoughts on EVs. And we got hundreds of responses. It was awesome. Like, many of you love your EVs. Tristan from Toronto loves his 2017 Chevy Bolt. I feel like it's a completely different driving experience. It, it looks like a souped-up golf cart, but it drives like a Porsche. Very fast, and I, I also love the fact that the maintenance is next to nothing. I was always bad at changing the oil and changing my brakes, and with using regenerative braking, I hardly ever use my brakes on my EV, and there is no oil to change, so I'm hooked. And many of you touched on other societal benefits to EVs, like reducing noise pollution, fewer kids with asthma, and fewer wars fought over oil. On the other hand, though, not everybody is financially ready to make the switch. Hey, Outside In, it's Brandon from New Hampshire. I drive an internal combustion engine car now, and in my family, we always drive our cars into the ground. So I see myself having this for five or six more years. So I'm just here waiting for high-quality EVs to come down in price so that it makes sense to switch from the car that I already own since I can't afford a new car right now. What are your thoughts about EVs? You can email us at outsidein at nhpr.org. We might include your message in our newsletter or in a future episode. All right, we'll be back. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, you're listening to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie here today with producer Felix Poon, and we are talking all about the electric vehicle transition. In some ways, it feels like it's happening fast from all the TV commercials and even President Biden test driving an electric Ford F-150. Mr. President! This sucker's quick. How does it drive? and a Hummer EV. It's a lot of suckers. <laughs> Biden really likes that word for some reason. Anyways, <laughs> but is it happening fast enough to decarbonize the transportation sector and to keep global warming to just one and a half degrees Celsius by 2050? And one of the big barriers is the grid, right? Yeah. When I think about whether our grid can actually handle EVs, I think back to last fall when California had a heat wave. This week's dangerous heat wave is already putting stress on the state's power grid. And you're prompting state officials to ask electric vehicle owners to refrain from charging their cars in hopes of avoiding power outages. Fox News pundits had a field day with this. Because the state's power grid is totally collapsing. This from a state that just banned the sale of gas-powered cars by 2035. Good luck with that plan. So are these concerns actually warranted? Okay, so sensationalism aside, I have to point out that California officials were not saying don't charge like ever during this 10-day heat wave. They were saying do your best to not charge between 4 and 9 p.m. Because mm-hmm. that's when people are blasting their air conditioning and sucking up tons and tons of power from the grid. But it is true, demand for energy is increasing. Right. And it's not just because we're using more air conditioning. It's also because the path to net zero we're talking about is to literally electrify everything from heat pumps to kitchen stoves to obviously EVs. Right. And to understand the grid, let's break it down real easy here. So we've got to maintain a really constant state of balance between supply and demand. This is Sarah Baldwin again. She's the electrification director of the think tank Energy Innovation. And Sarah says in order for supply to keep up with demand, we need to do two things. First, we need to increase energy generation by 100 gigawatts every year. That's more than 10% of all the energy we're producing now. I mean, we're talking huge amounts of energy, not to mention more battery storage. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing we need... We've got to also be very proactive about building out the distribution system. 
Those are the wires and substations that are everywhere all around us. Those lines and all the system that interconnects in our cities and towns and communities all the way down to your home or building. And we also have to use this other tool in our toolbox. There's more and more emphasis now on what's being called non-wires alternatives. Non-wires alternatives is just a fancy way of saying how can we use our energy in smarter ways so we don't need to produce and distribute as much. So the thing we talked about in California, you know, not charging your car during a heat wave when everybody's using air conditioners at the same time, is is that a non-wire solution? It is, but sending an SOS to EV drivers like that is kind of your last resort. Mm -hmm. Under more normal circumstances, the way this is done is through the market, basically making electricity cheaper when you use it during off-peak hours. And traditionally, what this might look like is, say, a program that lets your utility have a teeny tiny amount of control over your AC unit, like just to make sure not everyone's AC is turning on at the same time. Huh. But I think a more interesting example of something kind of like this is by Apple. They're programming our iPhones to charge at times when there's more sun and stronger winds. Really? Yeah. So these are non-wire solutions. We're using the same amount of wires. But we're using the electricity more efficiently. Exactly. Okay, so to recap, we need more renewable energy generation, faster than we're building it now. But we also have to build out the distribution system and use non-wires solutions to get us there too. And Sarah says that as long as all of that happens, the EV transition won't cause a grid failure. Now, is she actually optimistic about that? She is, and not just about expanding the grid. She's also optimistic about the transition to EVs as a whole. We're not sitting around waiting for a miracle that's going to save the day. We have electric vehicles. We have batteries. We have now $7.5 billion in infrastructure funding from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that's going to support the creation of a widespread national EV charging network. I appreciate Sarah's optimism But I think we should also really scrutinize something she said there, that we have the EVs, we have the batteries, because we only have those if we have the raw resources to make them. Right. And that's the fourth and final barrier we're talking about today, mining the metals for EVs. And there's one particular metal we're going to look at, lithium. It is a mineral that's often considered essential or even quote unquote critical for the energy transition. This is Theo Riafrancos, a researcher focusing on resource extraction and climate change. And lithium is a critical metal because, right now anyways, it can't be substituted. I mean, it is in literally the name, right? Lithium-ion battery. Right. So lithium is pretty abundant, but very reactive. So it doesn't exist on its own in nature. It's always in other things. Like, there's lots of it in the oceans, but... It's not that helpful because it's very low concentration. It's also in rocks, and you have to extract, crush, and refine those rocks to get the lithium out. They're doing this in mines in Western Australia. And then they're in brine deposits. Brine uh, is salt water. It's much saltier than the ocean, actually. And there are brine deposits underneath the, the, the surface of salt flats. You use what we might think of as an industrial straw, and you suck the lithium out, and you put it in large evaporation ponds, and the water evaporates into the air, and what's left behind is a higher concentration solution of lithium. 
This mining process is mostly happening in Chile, Argentina, and China. Plus, there's something like hundreds of projects being proposed in lots of other countries, including here in the U.S. in Nevada, where there's brine deposits. So, of course, Felix, you know the question of the day. Are we mining lithium fast enough to hit net zero? Well, Thea says there's basically two camps of thought. There's the overabundance camp that says there's plenty of lithium to go around. But on the other hand, there's the supply crunch camp that says we're not going to get to it fast enough. And Thea's in the supply crunch camp because she says opening new mines takes a really long time. Mines can take kind of on average 10, 12 years from initially being uh, prospected and then proposed to, to regulators to get permits and that kind of thing to actually being in production. That is an extremely long time frame. Other estimates say it's more like 16 years. That definitely takes us way past 2035. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we can speed things up and just green light all of the pending mine proposals. But the faster we go, the more environmental impacts there could be, particularly in countries with very little regulation. Right. Environmental impacts like ruining the soil, water shortages, and loss of biodiversity. But there's also the social impacts in the mining industry. At its mildest, there's a disregard for indigenous sovereignty. And at its worst, there's violence against indigenous communities. We covered these issues in an episode we did a few years back called The Lithium Gold Rush. Yes, and listeners should definitely check it out when they finish this episode. And so because of these social and environmental harms, people are always asking Thea, how do we do mining in a less harmful way? And her answer is the less we have to mine, the less environmental damage and conflict will result. So here's what Thea says we need to do to mine less lithium. First, small batteries. So that new EV Hummer, the battery size is massive. It's two and a half times the size of a Tesla Model 3 battery. Wow. And it's five times the size of a Nissan Leaf battery. Five times. But then you have to give up your Hummer. I don't want to give up my Hummer. (laughs) Joe Biden would have to give up his Hummer. Yeah, he can't have that sucker anymore. He would hate that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so, so thing number one, smaller batteries. Tough sell for Biden. Yep. Thing number two... We're going to need robust battery recycling programs, so we're squeezing the most out of every ounce of lithium that we mine. That sounds like a good idea. And Thea has actually done some modeling that says, with the most ambitious policies, we could reduce the amount of lithium we need by 90%. And all we need is smaller batteries and better recycling. And one more big thing. We need to drive less. Oh, I don't know. I thought that no Hummers was a tough sell for Americans. But think about this entire conversation we've been having. There are so many moving pieces that we have to get right here to overcome all those barriers we talked about and transition to EVs in just 12 years. Sure, it's theoretically possible, but would it actually be easier if we just stopped driving so much? Like, what if replacing every single gas car in the world with an EV just isn't the easiest or even the fastest route to decarbonizing transportation? This is just the path of least resistance because Americans like cars and we already own them and there's lots of highways, so you don't have to change as much. Um, But there's other paths not taken thus far that actually would be better for climate and for reducing mining. That's next time on Outside In. The race to net zero, building a car-free future. I hate driving in this city. The car they're driving in, when you drive that, you can kill somebody. Conversations we're having is, you know, why does it keep getting worse? Why is my train on fire? It's just like hope. 
we're building hope for people. This episode was produced by Felix Poon and edited by Taylor Quimby with help from me, Nate Hedgie, Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, Mara Hoplamazian, and our executive producer, Rebecca Lavoie. Special thanks to Elaine Borseth, Nathan Neese, Kaylee Hill, Natalie Runyon, Philip Liner, Mike Chapman, Robert Wills, Jay, Dan, and Jackie Mackey, and to Sheldon Steele and the Lars Anderson Auto Museum. Music in this episode came from Roy Edwin Williams and Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.